Hello, this is Don McPherson, your host of 12 Geniuses. I have the incredible job of interviewing geniuses from around the world about the trends shaping the way we live and work. Today, we are very fortunate to be joined by celebrity chef Justin Sutherland. Justin is a recent winner of Iron Chef America. He has appeared on The Rachel Ray Show and stars in True TV's Fast Foodies. When Justin isn't in front of the camera, he can be found in one of his Twin Cities restaurants making culinary works of art. Justin and I talk about the future of food. We discuss where the restaurant industry is headed as the pandemic winds down, food insecurity in America, the food industry's role in fighting climate change, and we even talk about the ethical treatment of animals. This episode of 12 Geniuses is brought to you by the Think to Perform Research Institute, an organization committed to advancing moral, purposeful, and emotionally intelligent leadership. Justin, welcome to 12 Geniuses. Thank you for having me, Don. Let's start off by talking about what you do and where you do it. You know, I'm primarily I'm a chef and restaurateur, mostly in, in St. Paul and surrounding areas. Other than that, you know, do a lot of work with community service, with social outreach, do a lot of work with food television, and I don't know, a lot of other things I have my hands in, so. What are your restaurants? Currently, we have uh, Handsome Hog open, I have Chickpea uh, Hummus Bar and Obachan Noodles and Chicken in the Rosedale Food Hall partners in the Gnome Pub and Woodfire Cantina, and a few other projects opening this summer that uh, aren't released yet. We're we're recording this on May 5th, 2021. It's, believe it or not, almost 15 months into the pandemic. And let's talk about the restaurant industry, because that's something that has been disrupted completely over these last 15 months. Could you talk about where you were in March of last year? restaurant-wise, and then we'll go into how you've come out of this. Yeah, I mean, March of last year was, I mean, pre-pandemic was was in a great spot. You know, the cities were really coming alive. I think there were nine restaurants that I was operating or a part of um, and, and looking to expand and just very excited for a prosperous year. I think everybody, everybody was excited. I mean, St. Paul was booming and, you know, things were going well. And where are we now in May of 2021? You know, the last months have have been slowly building steam, have, you know, four restaurants that have probably shut down indefinitely, um, five back up and operating now, a few of them new concepts, you know, just really trying to figure out what the new landscape of dining is going to be. Let's go back to the four that shut down. What has happened to those entities and the employees that worked in those entities? Everybody in the restaurant community, I mean, has, you know, has went the way of, of unemployment through the shutdown. Um, but, you know, now that we're new, reopened, we've we've offered all employees, you know, within our company jobs back at either the new entities or the expansion of Handsome Hog. We tripled the capacities. We were able to, to absorb a lot of people into Handsome Hog. And, you know, our main goal is always making sure people are, are employed um, when, you know, when we have the capacity to do so. And what percentage of people were able to come back that hadn't found work elsewhere? Everybody who was offered to come back or wanted to come back has come back. But, you know, where the the uncertainty in the industry is right now with a lot of people leaving the industry, pursuing other passions and just really kind of hanging on to this unemployment until, you know, until they know what's next. Um, a lot of people in the service industry are choosing not to come back to work right now. And that's that's our biggest hurdle currently. I've never seen more more now hiring and help wanted in restaurants. I mean, we are busier than we've ever been right now at Handsome Hog and the most understaffed we've ever been and not for lack of, of available jobs. And is it an issue of 
people are still getting unemployment and so they're able to make ends meet and they don't necessarily want to return to this industry or what are the what are the main factors behind that you know a lot of people found other passions found found other things i mean for most people restaurants were all that they knew and once that was taken away for so long they started finding other passion projects or learning different trades at home or just finding a second job and realizing that they enjoyed that so a lot of people just left the industry because they found something else you know, then there's another group of people who, you know, restaurant hours are, are hard and long and grueling and, and previously didn't really pay very well, you know, and they're still collecting an unemployment check and realizing, you know, maybe for a couple hundred extra bucks less a month, I can sit home and be happy without working. And there's, I mean, there's a big chunk of people who are just happy collecting that unemployment, not going back to work. I've heard that from other other CEOs and other people who are trying to hire people. Uh, I know somebody who was in the event business for a, a very large professional sports franchise, and they can't fill the the service positions at their stadium. And they're not even at full capacity yet in the stadiums, and they're still not able to draw people in. What's what's the solution there? What do you think you know the industry can do, or governments need to stop doing or start doing? Uh, I think, you know, I think that's that's three pronged. I think, you know, from a government as aspect, I think, you know, the restaurant industry, I mean, I know some relief facts have passed and things are in process and, you know, restaurants are going to are going to get some relief from the government. Um, that's absolutely necessary. I think restaurants need to pay more, you know, in general and just, you know, there needs to be a better quality of life for the restaurant industry. I mean, in the past. You know, it's been long hours, low pay, you know, a lot of, you know, substance abuse and mental health issues and just a lot of things surrounding that restaurant, you know, just stigma of the restaurant community that was that, you know, we thought was built into it. And, you know, that I think that ship has sailed. I think people need to be taken care of better and, and we need to be pay better, which brings us into that next tier is, you know, is just kind of the public perception of, of how restaurants operate and, you know, really letting people know what the margins really are, what it truly costs to operate. You know, people it's turn their nose up at a $25 cheeseburger, but, you know, you have to realize that out of that cheeseburger on that plate, the restaurant is probably taking home anywhere from three to 9% of that $25. Um, and, you know, so in order to pay your staff well, in order to pay your rent, I mean, everything about operating a restaurant is expensive from the napkin on the table to the dishwasher is washing your fork, you know, to the trucker who brought the, the produce in. There's just so many facets that take that cheeseburger to getting to your plate, you know, that I think the public just kind of ignored or, or just wasn't, you know, privy to. So I think it's just it's an education thing across the board to understand, you know, the difficulty and, and cost that goes into operating. You brought up something earlier around mental health and substance abuse, which I don't think anybody who knows the restaurant industry will be surprised that there are people who struggle with that. But you throw a pandemic on top of that and the level of insecurity and idle time, that's just a really, really terrible mixture. How did people deal with that? You know, for the most part, not very well. But I've read, you know, that this was the highest year for for drug overdoses of people in the service industry, and the hot in this year was the absolute highest for people, you know, checking into to mental um, mental health facilities and and having domestic abuse issues, and all of those things are just, you know, stemming from, you know, financial insecurity, food insecurity. That coupled with some probably pre-existing, you know, alcohol or, or substance problems and depression and this and that that just compounds from years in this industry puts on you anyway. So all in all, I, I don't think very well. I'm on the board of a drug and alcohol treatment facility in Colorado, and we have been expecting this just incredible wave of people seeking treatment. 
But the restaurant industry, you may not have the benefits in order to pay. Treatment is extraordinarily expensive for normal people. And I just can't imagine that a lot of people who are working in the restaurant industry could afford to go through treatment. Absolutely not. I mean, I would say just just knowing what I know without knowing any facts, I mean, I would say at least, you know, in the 75 to, to 80 percentile of people in the service industry do not have health insurance or it's very, very low, you know, low grade health insurance that wouldn't cover, you know, mental health. I mean, that's just basic if I had to ride an ambulance kind of situation. So, yeah. So, I mean, even when those struggles are, they're still not an outlet. How were you able to get five restaurants to, to make it through this? And, and I, I don't mean that glibly. I, I mean, honestly, just financially, how is that even possible? You know, I have some data that over 100,000 restaurants nationally shut down permanently or temporarily as a result of COVID. I would have thought the number was much higher. I'm just shocked that people were able to make it through this period of time where there was reduced revenue or no revenue. Yep. I mean, very, very barely. I mean, which is why, like I said, four, four to five of them have have closed and and will not reopen. Before the PPP loan situation started, I mean, we you know had no idea. It was really situation to situation. I think it depended on who your landlord was, what your prior financial you know situation was. I mean, some landlords were were super great for people I know, and were like, put your rent on pause and this and that until you're back up and running. And some landlords are like, no, I need you to pay me. You know, so it, I think it was very situational, depending on where certain restaurants were before this. You know, again, without support of the community, you know, buying gift cards and doing takeout and with the PPP loans and some government government intervention. Um, was kind of a, a total package of things that needed to come together to make it through. How important was the PPP loan? You know, it it was extremely important. I don't think it was structured very well. I don't think the people who put it together, you know, I think there were good intentions behind it. Um, but the first round, I don't think was structured very well, but they just needed to get something out there to, you know, to at least keep people afloat. Was it possible to remain relevant without it? For me personally, no. Um, I wouldn't have reopened um, during the shutdown for those periods of time doing takeout or only or anything without it. The PPP was payroll protection. So in, in the first rendition, I mean, you couldn't apply it to, to rent or past bills or any of those things. It was just to do payroll. Kind of flowing through to employees. It flowed through to employees. So, you know, we embraced that because I wanted to get as many people back to work as possible. You know, especially when you're talking servers who generally aren't, you know, they're getting cash tips, you know, in on paper, some of these servers are making $10,000 a year. So, you know, you know, I had a server who was like, yeah, my, my unemployment check is $119 every two weeks. And, you know, so it was more just to get those people back to work, but it really didn't solve the problems of all of the, you know, the loss of revenue, the, the product that went bad when we had to shut down you know, and just the cost of shutting down and, and reopening is is crazy. I mean, the first time we shut down, I mean, it cost $10,000 just to shut the restaurant down. I mean, to shut all your services off, all the product waste, the labor to do inventory and pest control and just making security and all that thing. It cost me like $10,000 every time just to shut it down and open it back up. You talked about low wages, no health insurance, bad hours. <laughs> it doesn't sound like a, a great industry to recruit people into. But when you look out five years or 10 years, what do you think the restaurant industry looks like? I mean, I think it looks very different. I think we've already, you know, are, are slowly turning a corner. I think a lot of the frills kind of disappear. I think we, we really had to hone in on what it is we like about a restaurant and what, and what is it there for? I mean, it's, it's a space for people to get together and generally you're there because of the food and drink and, you know, all of these, 
you know, inflated prices come from, you know, the high price maitre d' and the $100,000 chandeliers people are hanging and all of these things in the restaurant that are not any value add. You'll never get any money back for them. So, you know, people are leaning a lot into the counter service models, to the quick service stuff, and also just realizing that you can eat really good food, you know, without having to have this crazy environment. Uh, yes, there'll always be a place for fine dining. We'll always want to get dressed up and go out and, you know, have a special occasions. But I think those restaurants are going to be few and far between. And we're really going to be leaning into the more, you know, local neighborhood centric, you know, I think we're going back to more of the mom and pop shop kind of things because we appreciate, you know, the the work of our neighbors and understand how important it is to keep money and then keep things in our community and support each other. So I think we're going to get a lot more local. The last 15 months have obviously exposed how much people miss the restaurant industry and what an important part of their lives it is just in terms of the environment, the food, the conversations. So what advice would you give to guests or patrons as they're returning to restaurants? <laughs> you know, at first, you know, during the shutdown and then, you know, we'll call it phase one of the pandemic or wherever we're at. I don't know if we're at phase five now, who knows? Um, you know, at first it was order takeout by gift cards, this and that. And now I think it's you know, for instance, I mean, last Saturday, I mean, obviously it was a perfect storm of of everything that could have happened in Minnesota. It was 82 degrees. It was the United home opener. We had a wild game. We had a twins game. It was the Kentucky Derby. I mean, it was everything to do. And even at the minimum capacity and limited hours, it was the busiest day we've ever had in the history of Handsome Hog in six years. It was highest sales, highest guest count. It was absolutely insane. And that's how every restaurateur I talked to that day, they were just like that it felt really good to have people in and make that money, but it was the most exhausting battle we've done. So, I mean, that being said, I think just being cognizant of, you know, where everybody's at in the restaurant industry from a personal and, and, and mental perspective, a lot of these people have been sitting on their couches at home, not knowing what's next for the last year, and then just got called into battle. And I know every restaurant is grossly understaffed. I mean, it's just, it is what it is. So, you know, be kind, you know, understand that your food may take a little bit longer. Everybody's a little bit rusty right now. You know, just cut everybody a little bit of slack and, you know, maybe uh, hold back your nasty Yelp reviews until until people can kind of get their get their sea legs back because we are very, very happy to have you back. But there's just a lot of different factors affecting restaurants where you're not going to have that same experience you might have had a year ago. And that's just because the environment is different. Two of the things that I've tried to do is just tip very, very generously, <laughs> well above 20%. Yeah. And the second is just look those people in the eye and thank them. I've missed you. <laughs> you know, for 15 months, we've been holed up and cooking at home, and it's wonderful. And yeah. you know, there's a lot of love here, but my goodness, it's thank you for showing up and, and serving us. And today. a lot of times that goes, yeah, I mean, yes, tip, tip great. But that, you know, that recognition and that gratitude, I think, goes, you know, goes ev even farther. I mean, because we're, you know, we're running on skeleton crews that are doing it most. I mean, last weekend, I mean, I had three guys that were on their third 15 hour day in a row. I mean, you know, they work more, more hours than most people work in a week in three days and they're burnt out. They've, you know, they've made decent money, but just, you know, a little recognition, a little thank you. We met eight months ago, nine months ago, something like that last summer at an event, the inner city ducks. Now you're a board member. I'm a board member. I co-founded this organization with my little brother, Shaquille Nelson and another guy, Nick Dilday. And it's hundred, 150 kids last year, uh, mostly from North, North Minneapolis, uh, economically challenged neighborhood and you and some 
colleagues of yours in the restaurant industry came and cooked for about 200 people. And we gave about 10,000 meals away that day. So food security and food insecurity is a topic that you know, you're aware of, and it's really important for you to kind of bridge that. Could you talk about some of the other things you've done? Because I've just recently learned some of the things that you had been doing over the course of the winter to help people address food security. I remember exactly where we were day one when we found out restaurants were getting shut down, you know, and it was that next day we realized how much it was going to hit the restaurant industry. I mean, again, like we've talked about, most of our people live paycheck to paycheck and and are already living in secure situations. Um, so that day, you know, we applied for our 501 and started a, a nonprofit called The North Stands with, with Chef David Fema. And that was just to, to raise money to give direct stipends to hospitality workers to make sure that they could continue to eat um, throughout the year. We then realized how hard the uh, hospital workers were getting were getting hit. So we started a uh, nonprofit called Chefs Feed Our Frontlines, which was a twofold initiative to bring kitchen workers back to work that would prepare meals for hospital workers that were working 24-hour shifts and, and not eating. So we, we ran with that, then partnered with uh, Brian Ingram, um, one of my partners over at The Gnome. And every single Tuesday, we opened up a free food bank. Started off as primarily hospitality workers, but open to anybody who wanted. And everybody in the neighborhood was donating food. And we opened up a free food shelf. And you know, just really finding where the need was and, and taking care of people. And I and most of my colleagues have done most of our life is, you know, is feed people. So when we were told we couldn't do that anymore, we were like, well, we're, we're still going to do it. We're just not going to get paid, but we're going to make sure we're still getting people fed because, you know, that's that's what we do. And you did that every Tuesday? Uh, we did the free food shelf every single Tuesday. The first day we did it, it was supposed to start at 10 a.m. And there was a line about six blocks long lining up at 8 a.m. It was crazy. We did almost 100,000 pounds of food in three hours on our first day. It was, I mean, just seeing that need and then going through and, you know, seeing the seeing the people in those lines and just to see your, your, your neighbors and colleagues and people that used to work for you standing in line for hours with empty grocery bags. I mean, that shows a really big need. So that's when we really kicked it up a notch and started reaching out to other organizations, you know, the sheriff's department and a lot of the other food shelves. And they are bringing pallets of food over all week and it kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And from where did the food come? So when it, when, it, when we first shut down, it came from just all of the restaurants because we all, I just started calling around to all my chef buddies and I was like, what are you guys going to do? We have, we got no warning for this. I remember it was a, a Thursday. So we had just, everybody places their big orders Thursday to get all their food in for the weekends. And we just had coolers full of food. And at that point, we only thought we were going to be shut down for, you know, two weeks, <laughs> two, three weeks. We're like, this stuff's not going to last three weeks. So we were like, let's just give it away. So, I mean, at the first, you know, the first rounds were just neighborhood restaurants coming and dropping. They'd just bring truckloads and drop food off because they had nothing to do with it. Um, after that was gone, you know, we started reaching out to some of the larger purveyors because then, you know, once the U.S. Foods and the Cisco's realized that this wasn't ending anytime soon, they had warehouses full of stuff that was going to start going bad. So they started bringing truckloads over and then it just, you know, people kept catching word of it. And then there would just be, you know, just families would come by and just they'd go to, you know, they'd go to Cub and just say, hey, we were at the grocery store. Just want to drop this off. So a lot of families started doing it. And then, you know, larger organizations, like I said, the sheriff's department started and the fire department started doing weekly pickups and it just became a big community thing. There's about 42 million people, including 13 million children who struggle with food security. And 
I was doing a little bit of research before you came over today. About 30 to 40% of food gets wasted in this country. How, how do we fix this problem? Because it's not an issue of production, obviously. But how do we bridge this? Because the other thing with the pandemic is a lot of kids who do struggle with food security were no longer in school and therefore their source of food was you know, evaporated or, or disappeared. What's the solution here? When you see, you know, just the garbage dumpsters behind grocery stores and places that are just full of food. I mean, we it's infuriating the amount of food that we waste. I think it's just it's so deeply rooted in how we've always done things that there needs to be a hard reset on just how we think about food and production and feeding people in general. You know, starting off with the understanding that food isn't, you know, food should be included in our basic human rights. It's like not it's not a luxury. It's, it's not no, a, it's, it's not a luxury item. So, you know, and, you know, and there's just a lot of politics tied up in it. I mean, we all know that you know, a sell by date on food in the grocery store is not because that's the date that they know the food is going to go bad. It's because they need to get that food off their shelves because they have to buy more. So they're constantly rotating product and keeping commerce going. So I think reevaluating how we do those sell by and use by dates, because there's been plenty of times where we've went to grocery stores to take food that they couldn't no have on their shelves because it was past its sell by date and tried to bring it to different food shelves and organizations. And they're not allowed to take like, no, we can't take it. We can't take anything that's past the expiration date. We know that food's not bad, but, you know, because of different government mandates and things that they have to do to qualify for their, you know, statuses, they can't accept food past certain dates. And that's extremely frustrating. It, you know, it happens all over the world, but the extremity of it is a very uniquely American problem. You know, there's other countries who are, you know, passing laws. I know in I think France, Belgium, like they, any grocery store food has to be donated. They're not allowed to throw any food away. So we just need to start at the root of it. How concerned are you about climate change? I think I've probably, you know, in my 36-ish years, I've seen probably, I've seen a pretty drastic, you know, just, I mean, obvious climate change, especially living here in Minnesota. I mean, it's a very, very obvious how the climate is changing. So I don't understand how you can deny it. I mean, you can look out your window and see it. And, you know, it's been very obvious. Um, so it's definitely very concerning to me. Agriculture contributes about 10% of the carbon footprint here in the United States or you know, overall emissions. And that's just the growing of crops and maintaining of livestock. When you factor in the distribution, it's about 25%. So it's a big, big contributing factor to climate change. And I'm just wondering if you, whether it's through buying local or if you could just comment on what the food industry's role is in helping to combat climate change. Yeah, I think, I think starting, like you said, starting there, I think doing as much as you can local. I mean, buying local, knowing where your food's coming from, um, you know, is, is, is huge. Cutting back on as much processed and manufactured and, sh and trucked in food, I mean, helps. You know, and as, as an overall, I think we keep trying to take these, these small steps to combat climate change, but they're always monetized or, or, or capitalized. And I don't think the solution is something that's going to be profitable for anybody. You know, there's so many things that come into it from an economic standpoint. You know, we want to lower, the, you know, trucking and manufacturing, and then you get into arguments, all right, then are we losing jobs because of this? So I think, I mean, it's such a total package situation, which is why it's been so tough to tackle. But again, I think everything that we try and fix, you know, in the U.S., we try and we try and fix with a solution that makes somebody money. And I think that's what keeps steering us down the wrong path. One of the things that I've been thinking about is vertical farms and how those could be used to address some of the carbon that we're putting in into the atmosphere and maybe even 
repurposing malls and turning them into vertical farms. What, what do you think about the concept of vertical farms or city farms or uh, these types of innovations around food? I mean, I love them. I think that's, I think that's one of the, I think at least as, as far as a first, you know, baby step into it, I think that's something that's very easy to do, very economical to do. It brings everything to the forefront, especially when you're living in the cities. And, you know, a lot of these kids, especially, you know, we talk about North Minneapolis and, and urban don't really have a firm grasp of where their food comes from, what it takes to make it happen, what a farm looks like, what a tomato plant looks like, you know, in general. So I think in, and it fixes a lot of problems. I think it brings food to to food deserts and places where there's already food insecurity. I think it brings, you know, the entire process, you know, face to face with the consumers and it helps with climate change issues. Do you think that it's financially viable or is it one of those things like solar where there needs to be critical mass in terms of investment and infrastructure and the costs come down and then people can make money doing it? Uh, I think it's a slow growth process. I don't think that there's any initial negative aspects to it. Do I think it's it's a huge, you know, multi-billion dollar industry? No, but we don't need it to be either. If it takes a small chunk out of climate control, if it takes a small chunk out of food insecurity, if it takes a small chunk out of food deserts, if it brings a small amount of jobs and really isn't a big cost, why not? You use the term food deserts, and I think I know what you mean by that, but could you describe what that is? That's just areas uh, for me. I mean, generally inner city areas, generally low income and generally minority sections of cities where the ability to to get food is is not right at your doorstep. You know, most of us take it for granted that we can well, go a mile in any direction and run into a Whole Foods or a farmer's market or even have a garden in our backyard. And there are very distinct areas where you can't walk, and mostly people don't have transportation, where you can't walk or take a bus to a grocery store and get food. And there's not a restaurant. And these were areas designed, you know, for impoverished, generally uh, minority people. And it's still, they're still active today. What do you think the solution is in order to address that? Because I do agree with you that that's like we've talked about before, unconscionable, <laughs> that people without access to transportation don't have anything other than maybe a convenience store to buy chips or a frozen pizza or something like that. And, and that's and that's like when you say that, I mean, that's what it is. I mean, yes, every neighborhood has a corner store, you know, that feeds into to the obesity, that feeds into the heart disease, that feeds into the diabetes, that feeds into all the health issues, you know, that are, are plaguing, you know, these groups of people and, and these neighborhoods. So it's not necessarily not being able to find something to eat, but it's being able to find the right things to eat and, and healthy things to eat. How do you combat it? I think the first step is, is awareness. So I think, you know, not asking that that every white person in the suburb needs to go over to North Minneapolis and walk a 10 block radius and realize that there's only two liquor stores and, and five convenience stores and nowhere to buy an apple. But I think, you know, it needs to be put in the face of people. And so some so some things can be changed. When I was a kid, we had a garden. I hunted. I can remember a relative maybe a grandparent or great grandparent beheading a chicken and then us eating that chicken. And I am so disconnected from where my food comes from. And I think most, not only Americans, but most people around the world are disconnected. And I don't think that that's to our benefit. So first of all, how can people become more connected with their food? Because I think that is important to being human. The more we 
disconnect from things, the the more we desensitize from things. I mean, it's the same thing with the food deserts in the inner cities. If it's not in our face and we, you know, we're not, we don't know about it, then we can pretend it's not happening. So I think it's very important that from across the board, from from farming to, to animals, that that it becomes more of our daily life to know where our food comes from and that that gives us a greater level of respect for it. Of course, I'm far from a vegetarian and the Native Americans were even the farthest from vegetarian, but there was just this level of respect of, you know, I'm taking this life, it's here to nourish me and just this, this, you know, this whole circle of life mentality that we lost somewhere that where we just, you know, became the top of the food chain and everything just showed up on our tables, you know, and there was no more understanding where it came from. So I think it's baby steps. I think it has to start. I think it's too big of a problem across the United States to make it some just big flip of a switch oversight situation. I think it needs to start in neighborhoods and, and communities. And I think that, you know, goes back with buying local and knowing your your farmer and your butcher and where all these things are coming from. And I think it has to start locally and in small pockets around the country, you know, just kind of slowly expand. But yeah, just that knowledge of putting it back in your face because that seems to be the the trend with all the things that we're talking about is you know the farther we get disconnected from things the easier it is to just pretend they don't exist or not even have to worry about it anymore yeah for me just having a garden is powerful and i lived in the condo for 10 years and so i didn't have that luxury and, and even the ability to you know have a tomato plant out on my balcony but there is that connection and and also seeing the daily growth of whatever you're growing, tomatoes or beans or whatever is really exciting. And you do feel that connection. And it does taste better. I don't know if it's mental or if it actually tastes better. I think, I think both. I think it does actually taste better. A lot of these problems just needs to go back to our education system and just with kids. I think maybe for you and I, yes, we can easily change our viewpoint. But in order to, you know, institutionalize it and get it back a part of our society, I think it needs to start with education at a very low level. You know, so many of the programs that we've taken out of schools from home economics to, to shop class, you know, I was out in school, we learned how to take apart a small engine and we had to learn how to use a bandsaw and we had to learn how to make an omelet. And so, you know, all these things that are slowly being taken out of education, uh, you know, from freaking balancing a checkbook and doing taxes. I mean, just all of these life skills that allow us to be well-rounded people, I think, are getting taken out of education. And we're filling in with things that, that are really irrelevant to being a good human. When you think about the food industry as a whole, how do you see the future of food changing? We talked about the restaurant industry, but outside of the restaurant industry, just food, whether it be production or agriculture, what does it look like in the next five or 10 years in the U.S.? I mean, I right now it's really hard to say. It's in such disarray right now. I think it's going to be drastic. I don't think there's any going back. I think what, you know, this last year has shown us is how far reaching the restaurant industry actually is. We let restaurants die. And, you know, because of that, now we're having, you know, there's there's so many things that are connected to it from manufacturing to butchering to farming to packing to trucking, all of these industries that feed the restaurant industry. Are, you know, are having this domino effect backlash because of letting restaurants die this year. All of those industries are, you know, are generally blue collar or below working and, you know, and very low paid. And I think that all the people that grueled through those industries from, you know, from the farmers to the people in the meatpacking plants. I mean, right now there's a, I mean, a national chicken wing shortage. I mean, and the price on them is insane. And, you know, I was just talking to people on, online the other day and they're like, I can't believe there's a chicken shortage. And there's not a chicken shortage. We have plenty of chickens, but the factories are closing down because nobody's coming back to work. 
You know, they took a year off from working in these horrible conditions and they're like, I'm not going back to do that for that. We just had to take our, our catfish off the menu because our catfish farm called and they said, we have plenty of catfish, but nobody's coming back to process them. So they're closing their, they're closing their catfish farms. So we just had to take it off the menu. So I think it's going to take a lot more hits like that. There's trucker strikes happening and just all these things that feed the restaurant industry that are attached to the food world. A lot of these larger corporations got to figure out how to pay and, and treat people better because at the end of the day it takes people to make this food happen and the people are the ones that kind of said enough is enough in my notes here there's a an asparagus farmer who had to plow under his crop there was no labor there was simply no labor and that comes to the food wastage i mean the amount of food that's getting wasted right now i mean there's i mean even the pigs i mean i talked to a lot of my pig farmers and you know they want to butcher them within a certain poundage and they didn't have anybody working the plants. And these pigs have grown to three, 400 pounds, which are no longer at market. You can't sell them when they're that big because, you know, nobody wants a 10-foot loin. And they were just slaughtering pigs and throwing them away. <laughs> I mean, it's just insane when there's so many hungry people. And this whole conversation is just a, a full circle. What's next for you? You've got the, the restaurants. You're involved in television. You're involved in so many different things. You've got these nonprofits. You're involved with the inner city ducks. What does the future look like for you? A lot of the same. I mean, I've got a couple new shows we're working on, a couple new restaurants we're working on. You know, we've got season two for, for fast foodies, the last show. Um, we just got renewed for a second season. So I'll be taking off the summer to film the second season of that. And then, uh, another pilot that we just shot that can't really talk about right now. (laughs) You know, a few new restaurant projects potentially working on and, you know, still continuing the fight for the social and racial injustice that continues to, to plague us. And that'll that'll always take up a lot of my time. But I never really stopped this year. So it's just kind of continuing on. So let's talk just for a moment about your interest in social justice, because we're in Minneapolis, obviously, and that's where George Floyd was murdered. And there have been a number of other incidents that have been tragic and awful. What has been your role over the last year or even longer in terms of social justice or, you know, it's been wherever I, wherever I could be to help. I mean, you know, at the beginning, I mean, we took when George Floyd first, you know, happened and the protests were, were nonstop. I mean, we took my food truck out and just parked down there and we we're feeding all of the, the cleanup crews and the protesters and the local businesses for free and just providing food for people. Cause I mean, at least that's one thing that we can do is feed, um, you know, I've, I've spoke on the steps of the Capitol at, at a few of the different marches, you know, just kind of being a voice, being an advocate, you know, this, this year was very much, uh, you know, kind of a line in the sand year for, for a lot of people. And, you know, especially being, being a person of color and also being a business owner, you know, I think as business owners, we've always kind of walked this fine line between, all right, we've got to make everybody happy because we, you know, we have to represent our business and kind of keeping our personal beliefs and things separate and, you know, and this year was was like, when that's that's not it anymore. You're going <laughs> to if you come to my restaurant, you're going to know exactly what I stand for, what we believe in and, and what I will and will not tolerate. And just making that known rather than uh, trying to please everybody. Yeah, that, that's something that I certainly noticed on your Instagram account. I, I follow you on Instagram and you have been very vocal there and wear that on your sleeve. And I can respect that, certainly. And, you know, it's mostly not for me because a lot I mean, a lot of people. I was, for whatever reason, you know, blessed with a with a platform and, and and a voice. So, you know, I think it's important for other people to see that that I'm using my position to to stand up for what we collectively believe in. This seems different. I think you know the the week after George Floyd was killed, I just noticed that this was this is different than the '60s. It was different than 
you know, some of the other things that have, the, the, some of the other protests. It was global and it was huge here in Minneapolis and, and around the United States. And it just feels different. And the the verdict in the Derek Chauvin, who is the officer who killed George Floyd, was read a couple of weeks ago. What was your reaction to that? Uh, you know, for, you know, unfortunately, although we all watched it happen on tape, I mean, anybody, especially, you know, being a being a black man in Minnesota and America, it wasn't it definitely wasn't open and shut. We were like, there's still a good possibility he's going to get away with this. And so what, going into it, it was it's terrifying. I mean, you don't, you don't want your city to burn down. You don't, you want some justice to be served. You want to feel like something is finally different. You know, so when it happened, I think there was, uh, there was a collective kind of exhale. Just there was, there was a moment of celebration, you know, and not, not necessarily just for the fact that Derek Chauvin was going to prison, but that, you know, that the system finally worked, you know, the way that it was supposed to. Yeah. So, I mean, it was, it was definitely a, a moment of exhale. For some, it lasts longer. For some, it was just brief. Um, a lot of people were like, all right, you know, that's, <laughs> Let's next. That, 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 now next up, because, you know, unfortunately, I mean, during that trial, you know, it's it's happened again. And, you know, so, I mean, it felt good that, you know, that the system worked the way it should have. But it also was just step one. Where can people learn more about you? Uh, I mean, like you said, I'm, I'm very active on, on Instagram. You're, you're going to see a lot more than just food. But uh, if you follow me on Instagram at Chef Justin Sutherland, please check out my uh, website, justinsutherland.com. I keep that updated with all the things I'm, I'm working on. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty findable and out there. So I think if you type in Justin Sutherland on anything, I'll come up. <laughs> Thanks for spending time with us today. And thank you for being a genius. I appreciate it, Don. It's been fun. Thank you for listening to 12 Geniuses. Our next episode will explore how we can heal the political divide that plagues the United States. Our guest is Bill Doherty, one of the founders of Braver Angels, an organization that goes around the country and facilitates conversations between people with different political ideas. That episode will be available June 1st, 2021. To subscribe to 12 Geniuses, please go to 12geniuses.com. Thanks for listening. And thank you for being a genius.